And once again, good evening. Good evening. Once upon a time, the Buddha was traveling with this large community of monastics and they were traveling on foot from village to village. And on their journey, they passed through this particular village uh, called Kesaputta. And the people in the village of Kesaputta were called the Kalamas. And in this village of Kesaputta, it was situated in a really interesting way. Kesaputta, where the Kalamas lived, it was on the edge of the forest. And so what would happen is many spiritual teachers and practitioners, they would come through Kesaputta on their way into the forest and they would practice. And then on their way out, they would travel back through uh, Kesaputta. So there was this, this whole interchange of all these different spiritual teachers from different traditions coming through uh, their village uh, of these people of the Kalamas. And often when they would come out, they would spend like a night or two in Kesaputta, and then they would uh, share some teachings with the Kalamas. And it's said that all of these teachers, when they were offering their teacher their teachings, they would glorify their own approach and then disparage the approach of the other teachers. Yeah. Right. So this is kind of like the, the precursor to social media 2,600 years ago. It's a little different way of doing it. But as a result, uh, the Kalamas, they were really confused. Like, who should we listen to? What spiritual path should we engage in? Like, we're getting all these all this contradictory information. And when I slow down with that, it, it, to me, it kind of feels like our situation. There's, It's so easy to be exposed to a whole host of different spiritual traditions and different approaches to our well-being and our freedom, especially in this age of information. Like for me, sometimes it feels like I'm being bon bombarded by so much information. And then these questions, what should I follow? What should I explore? And what should I set aside? So when the, the Buddha and his monastics entered into the village of Kesaputta, uh, the Buddha asked, was asked to offer some teachings. And the, the Kalamas had a whole mix of feelings about the Buddha, which makes sense. You know, here they're being exposed to all these different teachers so some of them had heard stories about the, the Buddha and were excited about it and paid their respects, as it says. They, they uh, walked around the Buddha once and then bowed down. But then others were just kind of, sort of, kind of respectful. You know, they put their hands in what's called Anjali and bow. And then others, it seemed like they probably weren't really into it totally. So they just kind of skirt around the corner and stay silent as they came in. A little leery, but still curious in some ways. And just that shows that they were confused, you know, what to, what to make of this, how to go forward. And then what the Kalamas did is they shared their confusion to the Buddha. They said, uh, what I just shared with you, you know, listen, all these teachers, they're coming into our village. They glorify their own view and they disparage the kind of path and teachings of the other teachers. 
How do we figure out what to explore and what to follow? And then the, the Buddha replies to them. He says, it is fitting for you to be perplexed, Kalamas, fitting for you to be in doubt. So come, Kalamas, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay. Don't go by a collection of scriptures. Don't go by logical reasoning or inferential reasoning or by the acceptance of a view after pondering it. Or don't go by the seeming competence of a speaker or because you think, oh, this contemplative, this practitioner is our teacher. Instead, instead, this is what you should do. When you know for yourselves that these qualities, these qualities of heart that might be explored on a spiritual path, that they're skillful, that these qualities are blameless, that they're qualities that are praised by the wise, that these qualities when adopted and carried out lead to well-being and happiness, then, then you should engage in them. I find this to be such an interesting statement and in some ways a pretty radical statement from a spiritual teacher. I find it an interesting list and what I wanna do is I wanna slow down with it because I think there's a lot in here that he's pointing to. And I think it hopefully will reveal something uh, for all of us about how to go about you know, this this uh, this multiplicity of different ways of practicing. So, so as he says at the beginning, don't go, don't go by oral tradition or by a lineage of teaching, by hearsay or by a collection of of scriptures. So as he's saying, if we just put it into the right here and now, don't merely believe all that we offer here. For example just because it's Buddhism or because it has a long tradition. You see, he's saying that that would not be the reason to follow what we're teaching here. And don't go by hearsay. Maybe some of you are here because you heard someone say, oh, it's Monday nights. It's, it's kind of cool. You should check it out. It's really good stuff. But if I just follow that, I might be going just by hearsay. And that wouldn't also wouldn't be a good idea according to the Buddha. And when I take all of this in, it, it feels like he's emphasizing, don't go on some kind of blind belief or blind faith. So that's one thing he wants to really convey to the Kalamas and I think to us in this kind of situation. But the next part I also find interesting, and for those of you who were here last week, hopefully you can hear some of the wisdom that maybe the Buddha was pointing to that I was pointing out last week as well and how it's intertwined. Because he's also saying, don't go by how you think about things, right? He says, well, don't go by logical reason, reasoning or inferential reasoning or reasoned cogitation. 
or even by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, or because a competence of a speaker, because you think, oh, this person is our teacher. Most of that is around merely believing my own thought process, my own preferences and biases. But if I'm if I'm following my my old thought process and my own preferences and biases, that's just going to lead to the same my same old way of being in the world. Right? I, I can go through life merely affirming and cultivating the things that fit into my biases and preferences, and rejecting the ones that don't. So then I'm just getting the same old thing. It's not. So transformative, that's not going to be freeing if I'm looking for freedom. If I'm looking for a different way of being in the world. And hopefully you're hearing, if you are here last week, and if you weren't, I'll, I'll go over this, how views get shaped. At least this is the way I'm understanding the Buddha is, is has a sense of this. You know, I, I always pointed out that uh, views get shaped by people we trust in our personal history. And I mentioned this last week because it can feel like I have somehow thought through a view I hold dearly. That's what it feels like. I don't know if it feels like to you, but to you, like I hold a view dearly, like this is my political views, this is how I view the world. And I've come to that because I really thought through it really uh, quite closely. And I discovered the reasons for that view um, that, that, that um, helped me come to that conclusion. But actually, I shared with you this researcher last week, Daniel Kenneman, researcher in psychology, that he was pointing out most of the time, my mind begins with the view. It begins with the conclusion. And then what my mind does is that it discovers the reasons afterwards so I can justify whatever view is there. So yeah, this makes sense. I, I want to be cautious about how I think about things even. And we'll get back to this because I think there's a positive place where I'm getting influenced by the people I trust because that's also part of what the Buddha is pointing to. <laughs> so here we have the first uh, uh, part of this. These are the things not to rely on, to be cautious about your thinking at least uh, when engaging in things to not go by mere tradition or mere scriptures. And then he he shares with the Kalamas, what, what, here's, here's what you can trust and rely on, or this is what I'm suggesting to all of you. He says, when you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, that they're blameless, that they're praised by the wise, that these qualities, when you adopt them and carrying them out, lead to welfare and happiness, then engage in them. I love that first phrase, when you know for yourself. When you've run the experiment in your life. So maybe you come here on Monday evenings or you read a book or whatever it is, whatever spiritual tradition, you have to run the experiment. And then what are the results of that experiment? 
in terms of when he's hanging out with the Kalamas, he's he's specifically talking about qualities of heart, which I'll get to because it's really interesting that this is one he's pointing to. Right to the qualities of heart, such as kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, such as mindfulness, you know, such as a quality of generosity or having a particular skill like the skill of wise speech. When you nurture them and cultivate them, do they lead to your contentment and well-being and meaningfulness, you could say, or do they lead to more stress and misery? to run the experiment. And this is what I love about this path, that as a practitioner, this is what I'm called upon to do. I'm not called upon to believe. I'm called upon to find out for myself. This is why this is one of the qualities of the teaching, as the Buddha says, is the, the Pali phrase is, ehi pasiko, to come and see for yourself. This is a, a, such a core to what we're doing here. And then on the other side, does worry and chronic fear and resentment and jealousy, does it lead to your contentment and well-being <laughs> or to your misery? Or does just looking out for yourself lead to more contentment? Or is there more contentment when you're taking into account the well-being of others as well as your own well-being? So I'm exploring this, I'm investigating it rather than believing it. And probably, right, when I mention these things, probably for many of you, maybe most of you, it might seem like the answer is obvious, right? Oh, of course, kindness is better than my resentment. <laughs> I know that. But what I want to point out is that the, the experiment the Buddha is proposing is more than just the intellectual understanding. It's something deeper than that. Can I, can I start to feel what it's like to live a life that embodies those qualities? Can I con commit myself to them? Because for me, I'll, I'll be honest with you, that's the challenge. I can intellectually understand that all these qualities are wholesome, they're onward leading, they're skillful. But it's the, uh, engaging in it as an art of living that's intertwined with an entirety of a spiritual path. So it's, a, it's, a, it's not just an intellectual experiment, it's a, an embodied experiment that in many ways, I, I think we're engaged in throughout the path, throughout our lives. And as I said, one of the other things I find striking that he's saying to the Kalamas is that this path and practice is primarily about discovering contentment and freedom through nurturing qualities of our own hearts and minds. So it's this inner work that the Buddha is pointing to. He's super clear about this. And a caveat, it, it's true, you know, a, a, in terms of the research they've they've done, you know, a, a person's ability to meet their basic needs is foundational for well-being. And, and some of you might know these studies that they've done on well-being, really on happiness, well-being, contentment. And what they've noticed is that actually the sense of well-being it will increase with income. So well-being increases with income until it hits an income 
that is meeting the basic needs for someone. So it's really super clear that meeting basic needs is really important. I think it's important for personally for our society, for our communities, that, that we all do better when we all do better. But then what happens, which is really interesting, is that income after that, as it rises, well-being then flatlines. So the more money you have, you might have more money, but not more happiness, not more contentment, not more well-being. So there is a place for these external conditions on so many different levels, whether it be, you know, um, especially around, you could say, socioeconomic status. And, and I mention this because sometimes that's held out as this kind of what I call a counterfeit happiness or a counterfeit contentment. The more success I have, the more money I have, well, obviously the happier I'll be. I remember somebody was interviewing Elon Musk and the interviewer was saying, oh, Elon, your mind is so amazing. You know, you're so smart. It's just, so the interview was kind of glorifying Elon Musk's mind. <clears throat> And then Elon Musk said something really interesting, just out of the blue. He said, you know, it's really hard to turn it off. Mm. And I think the interviewer was a little bit stunned and said, well, uh, what, what's the hardest part here? He said, it might, might sound great if it's turned on, but what if it doesn't turn off? That to me sounds like a prison to be with a mind like that day in and day out with no support of discovering maybe a different way of being with that mind or shaping that mind or freeing that mind. Right? There's, there's, uh, that, there's no amount of money in the world that can deal with that, the prison of one's own mind. So I feel like the, 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 the Buddha is inviting the Kalamas to discover that there might be a way out of the prison of one's own mind. And this is what the Buddha is offering. This is really a, a core thing that the Buddha is offering. Okay, let's, let's go a little bit further. I told you there's a lot just in this paragraph. <laughs> Because he also said something else, which I found quite striking, which is that these qualities are praised by the wise. So what I found is this experiment that the Buddha's invited me to run needs to be influenced by people I find to be wise. So I'm not merely relying upon what I think is skillful. This is a bit important for me, like having my ways of thinking and my ideas informed and at times challenged by others I respect has been super important, really important. As I said, if if I'm merely following the way I have thought about things, that, that really hasn't brought me deep contentment and freedom. I'm just following the ruts that are already there. So I need to allow myself to be influenced by others who I feel are wise, 
who might open up a deeper path for me. And really, it has opened up a deeper path for me that's carried me along. But then there's the question, how do you figure out who is wise? This is the conundrum, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever had that experience. There's somebody I thought was wise and I realized maybe not so. <laughs> so I just wanna share my process around this. Quite honestly, like I'm making educated guesses. I'm guessing. And then I think when I reflect back on it, my educated guesses have gotten refined over time. But I have to be willing to take some educated guesses. And sometimes they're good guesses, sometimes they're not. That's just part of the process. So there's always, I think, a, a guessing at least to an extent. And then I think I have discovered people or communities at times who feel like they have some wisdom who, or at least embody, this is important, at least for me, who embody certain aspects of wisdom. So it means that uh, I, I'm not looking for like perfect people. Like there's been so many people in my life that lives that have had imperfections or blind spots and they've embodied wisdom, at least to an extent that has, uh, I've seen that's been helpful in my life. And that speaks to me. And hopefully you're hearing how this turns things around. I move forward in my life through good relationships, not just through my own individual efforts. This is super important, especially in a highly individualistic society. I, I'm, I'm here because of others. I, I move forward because of others and good relationships. So it's great to to develop a keen sense. What are the good relationships in your life or the communities or even the books or whatever it is that carry you forward? Like that's what you need to discover. But I move forward in my life through good relationships, not just through my own individual efforts. I remember I was in India when I was uh, uh, 20 and I turned uh, 21 when I was there. And I was taking a, a long train ride and I I feel so lucky for this, it seems like random circumstance. So uh, across the aisle from me was um, a monastic who had been in a Buddhist, Buddhist order for 20 years. And he was so kind to me. I think we, he, he, I had so many questions at that age and I was so eager. And he was willing to stay up basically the entire night as we were on the train with my questions in these discussions. And after that, we had this uh, correspondence. So this is before email. <laughs> and in that connection, it started to allow me to feel uh, what it was like to have somebody wise in my life. And I think what it began more importantly was the process of learning how to find wise communities and wise people. Not perfect people, wise people. And then what happened is I felt like my practice deepened, my skill of finding wise voices uh, that could speak to me deepened. And I, I do want to say... Uh, what I found found is that as my practice deepened, 
the voices I needed to hear changed. So this is another really important thing is that that my development is also fluid. So I need to hear different voices. I need to to continue to seek this out because I'm changing. Also, when I go over this, and just an invitation for you to reflect on this, I think it's important to remember that just the obvious, but I really want to name it, that well, what resonates for you might not resonate for other people. Right? What resonates for you? What 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 is it for you that really resonates for you and the particularities of your life? Because that's that can be quite different for different people. And to honor that to make sure that it's really resonating in here for the particularities of your life and you. And also the, the reason I, I share this is because sometimes, not always, but again, sometimes we navigate the path differently. It is true. Sometimes we, we really do navigate the path really quite similarly, but there's differences too that really need to be acknowledged and to be honored. And what comes to mind for me, just as an example of this, is um, I remember my partner and I, Robin and I, were, were hiking. We're hiking off trail in a wilderness area. And we had come uh, upon this, actually, this vast area where most of the trees had fallen over. So this kind of downed area. And, you know, we were younger. We were into that stuff. So we were bouncing through this really rough uh, territory. And it was so interesting, you know, because at times when I was following the path that she took, it was such a challenge because she's much shorter than me and more limber. So often, you know, she'd be kind of trouncing through, through, but she would often be looking for kind of these pathways where she'd be crawling, crawling under all these fallen trees, which was much more difficult for me. <laughs> and then when I was leading, it would be the opposite. Right, I was trying to like jump over things or go over things, which is much more difficult for her. Right, the, the the paths that we needed was a little bit different because of our particularities. And of course, hopefully, you're hearing I'm talking much more than just about height and flexibility. <laughs> Maybe that is part of it, but much vaster. And even uh, this is why you probably heard me. Uh, at the beginning here, like one example clo closer to formal meditation is that, for example, an anchor like the breath. The breath really does seem to work for most people. And there's a way that one can, can start to get in a rhythm of the breath where it really becomes an ally for meditation. And it's a it's a wonderful one, I, I find, because it's so connected also with uh, how uh, emotionally how I'm feeling because it's going to start to resonate and inf impact the breathing. So then I can feel that in the breathing and be with it. So it's really rich. And at the same time, for other people, it, it just doesn't work. And why doesn't it not work? We don't have to figure that out. It just doesn't work. <laughs> and often what can help is something else like feeling the whole body or sounds. Like I even know monastics that have been in robes for 40 years that don't use the breath. They use something different because they really realized there's something that more that resonates more with their system. I think it's important to start with the breath, but to remember, just like with my story, what's going to support you? And you have to run the experiment to do that as well. 
So again, the, the Buddha gives them this advice. Don't go by tradition. Don't go by your own reasoning. Go by when you know for yourselves that this is skillful, this is onward leading, this is about freedom. You have a taste of that in some way. Then engage in that. And then he ends. The end of this uh, this sutta is very interesting, this story. He, um, he ends by saying, you know, if you discover what is praised by the wise, and if you run the experiment yourself and you discover these qualities of heart that are onward leading, you're guaranteed of these assurances. So he goes over a couple of assurances. This is what you'll be assured of. He says, one thing that you'll be assured of is if there is a world after death, if there's rebirth, then with the breakup of the body after the after death, you will at least reappear in a good world, in a heavenly destination. This is an assurance. And another insurance, assurance is if there's no world after death, then here in this present life, you'll be able to look at look after yourself with ease, being free from hostility, free from ill will, free from inner trouble. I find that interesting. He's saying, run the experiment. And this is this is uh what you'll be assured, like to. See if this is starting to be the case. Is there more freedom in your life or not? Especially internal freedom, freedom with your heart and your mind. And then this this uh, word Pali. It's in the uh, early one of the early scriptural languages, Pali. Um, the the Pali word for assurance. It's so interesting. It's uh it's asasa or asaso, depending upon the declension, which means breath, an easeful breath. So assurance is to be able to breathe easy. Which I love that this is how I discover if, if freedom is really here, is I can feel it in a bodily way. I can breathe easy. So when you discover this, you can breathe easy. So may all of you, may all of you run the experiment. And whatever you discover that feels onward leading, may it allow you to breathe easy for, for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.